So, um, very happy to be here, um, see your beautiful faces, uh, and uh, some familiar faces, <laughs> and some new ones. Um, so today we'll do a little bit of meditation. I'm going to provide some instructions or guidance, uh, and then I have some Dharma reflections I wanted to share with you, and then we'll have a chance for a conversation. So for the practice, um, I wanted to emphasize the movements of the mind that are really helpful in meditation. So one is the movement of the mind from a doing mode to a being mode. This is something that you know most of us are quite busy and good at doing things. So sort of like a intention that we set that we're going to go from the doing mode to the being mode. Uh, and part of this is because the kinds of things that we do in the real world, execute a strategy, strive harder, work harder, uh, are very helpful in the real world or can be, but tend not to be helpful in meditation. And if you've sat me, with me before, you will know that I love the analogy of a snow globe. So going through life is like being in this snow globe with all our responsibilities and activities and things we have to do. That we're often, the experience is like being in this swirl of energy. And there's not really a technique that I could try to use to settle the snow globe. The only way the snow globe settles is by placing it on the ground or on the table. And then it settles because it's the nature of the snow globe to settle. I, mean, I could say I settled it, but that would maybe be a stretch or just a manner of speaking. The mind, the heart, body all share this nature to seek a kind of equilibrium or balance. Um, if I were to run up a flight of steps, I'd be activated, and then I can have 100% confidence that uh, a body will find its own equilibrium. And it's nature. I don't even have to do it. I can kind of get out of the way. And so this attitude of not doing, so not fixing, not judging, not comparing, not striving, or noticing when we're doing, striving, judging, fixing, and then just softening the grip on that. The other mode we uh, of being that we change in meditation is going from thinking to feeling. So thoughts have this amazing ability to project into the future, to remember and reflect upon the past. Uh, but the, the other senses, the tactile, visceral senses, are really present moment oriented. I can think about yesterday's breath, I can think about tomorrow's breath, but I can really only feel this moment's breath. And this, um, in moving from thinking to feeling, we um, create conditions that are supportive for this natural setting, settling to happening. And again, because none of us are probably fully awakened, we will just notice that 
the activity of the mind is there, and then reorient the attention so we're we're making the feeling more primary. Thoughts are pretty much always happening. You know, there are conditions where you can have thoughtless states, but they're very specialized conditions. So it's letting the thoughts kind of be, I think, in the background and then like the object of my meditation in the foreground. There's a third movement of mind. Maybe this is a little bit more esoteric, but I'll share it nonetheless. And that's moving from a kind of preoccupation to what's happening in experience. So if we're having an emotion, we tend to be preoccupied with that. Is it pleasant? Do I want to hang on to it? Is it unpleasant? Do I want to get rid of it? And so the invitation is to focus not just on what's happening, but also how am I relating to it in this moment? Am I pushing? Am I resisting? Uh, how is that? How is the mind adding to the experience? And is that addition helpful or unhelpful? So the last thing I'll say is that the other condition that's really helpful for allowing the body to be stable, allowing the thinking mind to kind of relax and settle down is um, kind of having a loyalty to your object of meditation. So I'm going to guide using the breath as the object of meditation. And so the general instruction will be um, let the attention rest on the feeling of the breath moving through the body. And whenever you notice there's a distraction, thoughts arising, sound captures your attention, just come right back to the breath. And this is slightly contrast with those of you who have done a Vipassana practice where you might, you know, kind of explore the things that carry the mind away. Uh, but for today, I was just going to suggest that we just have this sort of loyalty to the anchor. So each time you notice the attention is distracted, you just come right back, beginning again in each moment. And, no and notice there, even if they're like, can there be a smile at the recognition that you've woken up, that you've realized the mind is lost in thought, you've realized the mind is daydreaming, that this is actually a moment to be celebrated. So whenever you notice the attention has wandered, smile, and then come back to resting in resonance with the breath. So uh, with that little prelude, let's begin. Um, inviting you to find as much ease as you can in your posture. Change your posture if that's helpful. You can soften the eyes. Close the eyes or soften the gaze. Maybe taking uh, one really intentional deep breath and on the exhale, making a kind of sound.
do that a couple more times if it's helpful. And maybe just beginning with a little investigation. How's it in the body? What sensations are most prominent? Is there an overall sense of pleasant or unpleasant or neither? There's some sense of the attitude of the mind, the mood of the mind that might be coloring how you're meeting this moment. And then notice if there's a problem to be solved. Something lacking, something in excess. Too much or too little energy in the system. Or some question, some doubt. Then letting all of that go and resting the attention lightly on the feeling of the breath moving through the body. Letting everything else just fade into the background. Awareness connects with the tactile, visceral, felt sense, experience of breathing. Keeps us connected to this moment. Letting it be really simple. Just breathing in, knowing that you're breathing in. When breathing out, knowing that you're breathing out. Letting the body be relaxed, letting the effort be relaxed.
just receiving the ever-changing flow of sensations as the body's breathing. Maybe even noticing how little effort it actually takes to receive these sensations. And every time you notice that the experience of thinking has become primary, soften, smile, and begin again. Connecting with the felt sense of the body breathing. If there's any strain or any idea of trying to make something happen, let that go or soften your grip. Relax into the simplicity of just being here, awake, receptive.
Body breathing in, body breathing out. I can practice with this attitude of nowhere to go, nothing to do, nothing to get, nothing to get rid of. No one you have to be or become. Well, just to be alive is enough. Maybe even some joy at the intention of putting it all down. Just to be alive is enough and we can connect with the aliveness of this body through the very breath that keeps it alive.
just returning, beginning again in each moment. This is the heart of the meditation practice, this willingness to show up again and again for our experience.
Now letting go of any idea of meditation, anything that seems like a practice or technique, and just resting. Awareness continues to receive the sensations of the body breathing. Just resting. In a moment, I'll ring the bell. Thank you, everybody. Feel free to just take a moment to stretch or readjust or move the body around. Would really love um, to see as many faces as are willing to show themselves. <laughs> There's something especially special about this group. It just feels like, yeah, thank you. It's nice to see each other. So, um, lately I've been doing a practice, um, which I call practice not complaining. And so this is literally what it sounds like, you know, when I starts out that I would notice that I was complaining and go, oh shoot, that was a complaint. Let it go. Try again. Um. To make it more interesting, I've enlisted the help of people in my orbit, uh, and their prompt is that whenever they notice that I'm complaining out of habit, they'll just say, is that a complaint? And uh, that's my gentle reminder. The irony is that when I asked people to do this and they obliged me, my first reaction to their mindfulness reminder was to be irritated to want to complain about that, <laughs> to complain that I'm not being allowed to complain. Uh, even though I asked them to do this, you know, like it, it's funny that, that there, there's some intuition in my mind that complaining will help in some way. And maybe it's a kind of, well, if I could just vent it or get it off my chest, then, uh, I'll be done with it. Uh, 
The first thing that this illuminated, this practice illuminated for me was how much of what I vocalize, I haven't even gotten to the inner complaints yet, but how much I vocalize in the world is some form of complaint. It's a judgment, a dissatisfaction, something I disagree with or something I'm, you know, lamenting about. I mean, it just seems like there genuinely is a lot to complain about. <laughs> Julia Butterfly Hill is a famous activist. Some of you may remember her. She spent a little over two years uh, living in a redwood tree as a social protest to keep it from being logged. And uh, she used to say, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. And, you know, it kind of it feels like that in some way for me, like there, there's plenty to be angry about. Uh, pick a topic, open the newspaper, lots and lots to complain about. And somehow it feels like the complaint is helpful in some way. Like I said, some sense of venting. Also, maybe just some sense of so many of my complaints are about things of which I have very little influence you know, global systemic problems, uh, violence in this country, the bitter acrimony of our social discourse and the political and social realm. Maybe there's a part of me that feels like at least the complaint is I'm doing something, (laughs) even if I'm unable to solve these problems. Upon further reflection, it seems that the the idea of it venting, at least for this mind-body, doesn't really pan out. Like, it doesn't... The complaints are inexhaustible. The pile of complaints is bottomless. So once I start the energy of complaining and the mind is endlessly creative, I will just find more and more things in the environment to support whatever my complaint is. For me, it goes something like, you know, there's a mild complaint, and then the mind is like, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing. And it's just this fuel. Uh, and And my experience of this is that it really only ends when I'm utterly exhausted. And there's no more energy to complain anymore. And uh, I've decided it's not helpful. It's actually not helpful. Oftentimes the quarrels are uh, with the fundamental laws of the universe. (laughs) I just had a birthday, so I'm very aware of this aging body and would like to complain about it. Very aware about more aches and pains in the body that I would like to complain about. But it doesn't help. These complaints are a form of ill will. the Buddha would probably call it. And the ill will by its nature is a barrier to any sense of equanimity or peacefulness. It creates an agitation. It's the nature of ill will. And ill will can be the spectrum from like the mildest irritation or even the like below irritation, like just something not quite right in this moment to, you know, rage and things that we see you know, that can be manifested by angry humans. 
And if one of the fruits of meditation that we might be looking for is a sense of being emotionally balanced, a sense of being even keeled, a sense of having uh, a kind of equanimity, um, then I think it behooves us to pay attention to this, this complaining mind. So when I say complaint, uh, I really do mean some expression of dissatisfaction that has some seed of ill will, some aversion, some resistance, some the flavor of the fieriness of anger, even if it's not extreme. Um, I don't mean uh, requests that we can make to get our needs met although the two can have some overlap. You know, when the server gets the order wrong and you send it back, that need not be a complaint. It could be a simple request, and requests could have, you know, it could be wise speech. It could have the quality of being kind and beneficial and timely and um, done with a heart of goodwill. Even in familial or intimate or partner relationships, Oftentimes we have needs that we want met, but they're expressed in the form of a complaint. Something like, you know, well, you never, you know, fill in the blank, or you always fill in the blank. And, you know, as the listener to such complaints, I have the, the privilege of, you know, my wife, my wife is not like that. She's not a complainer. So we're kind of a good match in that way. Uh, two complainers and like life is really tough. We <laughs> need one. Uh, but when I'm in the presence of people who are complaining as the listener, I try to see like, is there a request in this? Like, can I just dis discard the ill will or the edges or the tone of voice? Uh, as my own practice of being in better relationship with people and see like, what, what's the request here? Maybe even reframe it, you know, in terms of like, Oh, can I do this to, to meet your, your need? Because the, you know, <laughs> when I'm the complainer and I'm complaining to get my need met, it's much more unlikely to get met than if I can, metabolize that energy of complaining and just make a simple request. Sometimes my complaints are a response to some form of suffering. Like if I have a lot of physical pain or emotional pain, I might be prone to complain more in general or complain about that thing. And there is a way in which, you know, talking to friends or therapists can help, but it seems to me helpful when they don't, those people don't indulge the, the cycle of anger. Just listen receptively and maybe even help me see what need is being un, unmet. Another thing is that, you know, this negativity bias is built into our neurology. So as our ancestors roamed the jungles, 
we survived because we have this ability to be vigilant and talking to a group of BIPOC folks. Like I suspect we know this even more than other people that there's a kind of ability to scan the horizon for dangers, to remember the place of danger more easily. And actually it's been shown that we process the information related to what's stressful or scary or dangerous more quickly. Which as an, as an aside is like a really good reason to have a contemplative practice where we, you know, take in and savor the what's beautiful, the simple pleasures of life. Like it takes time for those things to sink in. So that which is stressful and dangerous naturally attracts our attention and the purveyors of the media, social and otherwise, politicians, corporate America, all the people who are vying for our attention, especially in this in the world of the internet and online, they know that the way to get our attention is to bombard us with messages that stoke fear or stoke outrage. Um, so if we're not intentional about stewarding the mind in some way, not intentional about taking time to practice cultivating generosity and patience and loving kindness and all these supportive, wholesome attitudes of mind, we tend to, you know, we tend to mirror, like this is something that we do, you know, like our hearts vibrate in unison. So if we're in this field of all, that's difficult and stressful and alarming and designed to get us riled up, then that becomes the how we experience the world. The Buddha described this as whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. Whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. So it's like, develop this kind of habit or this leaning or um, a pessimism or the mind that practices complaining gets better at complaining. <laughs> and, you know, and some of us have this temperament also, you know, to be, uh, there's a, you know, actually in, the Vasudhimaga, 1,500-year-old text, there's a discussion of Buddhist temperaments. And there's seven or eight temperaments, but the three, three, are, the three that are most important are the greedy type, the aversive type, and the delusional type. And these are temperaments that have both their you know, helpful, uh, wise aspects and also their um, places where we can train and be better so that the greedy type appreciates beautiful things. You know, they, they appreciate art and beauty and poetry and music. They walk into a room and they see uh, a you know, beautiful mandala hanging from the wall and they go, oh, wow, that's that's so beautiful. That would look so great over my mantle. You know, they, they want things, but it's out of that appreciation for beauty. The aversive type walks into the same room and all they see is that the mandala is slightly crooked. It's not quite hung right. They see the problems in the world. and But the people who can see the problems in the world also can have discerning insight and wisdom and clarity and, 
and responsiveness to actually fix the problems in the world that need fixing. And then the delusional person never made it to the room. They're just kind of wandering around the halls aimlessly. <laughs> and there's, there's a whole, there's like dozens of pages in this text about identifying your, your, your temperament and then doing practices that are supportive for your temperament. So the greedy types can do practices of renunciation to uh, loosen the grip on the things that are beautiful and the uh, aversive type. I'm definitely an aversive type can I'm aversive with a, with a smidge of greed. It's like a little combo. Uh, you know, we can do practices that incline the heart towards kindness that, that calm the, the fire that's in us. And then the delusional folks can do practices that really bring clarity, like noting practice or really like practicing seeing their experience clearly. So, so it's good to know your, your, your temperament. Uh, there actually, there's actually a test you can take online, but you get a sense, I think, in describing these of where you fit on the spectrum. And so for me, you know, complaining has been a lifelong endeavor and art form. And then on top of that, I'm a lawyer. So I have professional training in imagining the worst case scenario and like a PhD in catastrophizing. <laughs> and if you're not careful, um, then this becomes the inclination of the mind that all you see are problems. And this really saps out of the joy out of life that if we can't like be holistic in how we're perceiving the world. Focusing, tend to focus more on what's wrong, uh, which reminds me of Thich Nhat Hanh saying, you know, uh, feel the joy of the non-toothache. When we have a toothache, it's all that preoccupies our attention, but there, there could be like a joy that, and sometimes I'll do this reflection when I, um, I read the paper and I'm reading about what's happening in Ukraine, uh, you know, to shift to a place of compassion. You know, which another discussion, actually, that I'll, maybe I'll save that. But also like to be grateful that bombs aren't dropping on me. You know, it's kind of like this is the complainer's way of <laughs> balancing the mind, but like the worst things aren't happening to me. They aren't happening to the people I love and the people that I know, at least in this moment. Just to kind of tilt the mind in the right direction. And then a kind of stewardship of the mind, you know, like paying attention to what we're consuming. In the same way, we what we consume as food dramatically affects our physical and mental health and well-being. What we consume by the mind, the information that we're consuming, the sources of those information, even the entertainment that we consume. Like, I love superhero movies. I always have since the like the original Superman movie. Whenever that came out, I just love. I used to even watch the the Batman from the fifties. You know, it's pow. It's like so terrible production value, but I loved it. I think that's actually why I got attracted to Buddhism is that there's like the Buddha was maybe the first superhero <laughs> and had this journey of the hero, which is very appealing to me, you know, to feel like 
I'm on a path and it and and there is heroism in this path of practice, you know, because it requires our dedication and our persistence and and it's hard. Sounds so simple to sit here and pay attention to your breath, but it it's hard. I try to make it a point to uh, also consume good information, information that's uplifting, information that's inspiring. Um, my wife and I used to subscribe to a magazine called Hope, and it was kind of like a Time magazine style magazine, but it was all about amazing people doing beautiful things in the world, amazing acts of generosity and caring for each other, and uh, it was very inspiring. And then the magazine went out of business. It was bankrupt. <laughs> we were one of the few people who were interested in consuming this information. Um, but you can find it. It's out there. You know, I've curated my YouTube uh, feed so that it's a combination of all the things that I find uplifting, like people singing and uh, baby goats and... Uh, there's a lot of dharma in there, you know. So it's really like I can, I can, I can use the machine <laughs> to ser- in service of something better than um, maybe what it's designed for. I was reading a, a there's a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, Mark Morford, and he wrote something that just really inspired me as I share with you. He said, um, realize that for every ongoing war and religious outrage and environmental devastation and bogus military attack plan, there are a thousand, there are a hundred thousand counterbalancing acts of staggering generosity and humanity and art and beauty happening all over the world right now on a breathtaking scale from flower box to cathedral. You know, the, the mind, the heart, they, they respond to, these, to this kind of thing also in ways that are beneficial. So the, the Buddhist teachings have a lot to say about ill, Ill will. Uh, and it's a very high bar that's set, um, in part because ill will is traditionally seen as one of the three streams of energy that is a primary contributor to our suffering. Greed, hatred, and delusion is kind of the shorthand we use for those three things, but it's Hatred is the extreme. Same could be true of said of any form of even just resistance. And the Buddhist teaching set a high bar. Shanti Deva said, "Anger is the greatest evil. Patient forbearance is the greatest austerity. Whatever wholesome deeds that have been amassed over a thousand eons will be destroyed in one moment of anger." Maybe you know this experience of like an argument that just got a little bit too heated and then one person just said the thing that can't be unsaid. 
And even if the relationship is healed, that's always just there lingering in the background of that thing that was spoken. Other words from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada, he abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying on like this, hatred never ends. She abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those not carrying on like this, hatred ends. So right from the Buddha, <laughs> stop complaining. And it's the carrying on that is the key aspect, you know, rather than keeping it alive through continual lament and complaint. We practice seeing the complaining mind, recognizing what's calling our attention in this moment, feeling the energy that is requesting or demanding our attention. Even higher bar uh, in the parable of the two-handed saw, which is unusually graphic in its violence. I don't see a lot of these sort of graphic descriptions of violence in, in the teachings. Uh, but I'll share because I think it's, it's important that it's so extreme. So the Buddha's talking to his followers. He says, even if bandits were to carve you up savagely limb by limb with a two-handed saw, those among you who let their heart get angered would not be doing my bidding. It's like aspirational, <laughs> we could say. Uh, you know. And the Buddha goes on, even then you should train yourselves. Our minds will be unaffected. We will say no evil words. We will remain sympathetic with a mind of goodwill and no inner hate. The high standard comes here um, from the recognition that anger is a poison. That, you know, the bandits are long gone and our anger is just uh, poisoning ourselves, making ourselves ill, or at least clouding the mind. It's said that, like, you know, holding a grudge is like taking poison and hoping the other person gets sick, or the Buddha described it as picking up a hot coal to throw at someone, and in the process, you get burned. So he goes on to say, we will keep pervading these people with an awareness imbued with goodwill, Beginning with them, we will keep the all, we'll pervade the all encompassing world with an awareness imbued with goodwill, abundant, expansive, immeasurable, free from hostility. You should train yourself thus. So, this is the description of the method of cultivating metta friendliness, benevolence, goodwill a great antidote to streams of ill will or anger. So we might get the sense from these teachings that anger is bad, we shouldn't get angry. We might think that it's some sort of spiritual shortcoming or character flaw. We might suppress our anger, which actually just leads to more festering, makes us more irritable and can even make us sick. 
And I think this is a real thing in spiritual communities where someone who's angry may be silenced, you know, and they might have good reason to be angry. They might be complaining about something that actually needs care and attention. It's not the anger itself that's the problem. It's rather what happens when we lack restraint and act out in angry ways that are harmful to ourselves and others. One really helpful way that I like to work with anger and really any of these energies that show up in our meditation practice is sort of ripe for that. And it's uh, using the acronym called RAFT. Some of you probably heard the acronym RAIN, and this is similar. RAFT stands for, the R stands for recognize. This is what we train to do with mindfulness, to recognize the constellation of experiences that anger is present here, ill will is present here. I have a new note in my meditation, a complaint is present here. <laughs> and then the, the, so R, recognize, A, allow. So this is like for a moment, abandoning the mind that wants to fix, the mind that is aversive to the aversion, wants it to go away, to create space to actually investigate what's this experience before we try to manage it or fix it in some way. And also, when we don't allow, that just means there's more resistance, which is just feeding even more agitation into the system. So recognize, allow, and then the F in raft is just feel. So feel this experience of anger being present. Or it could be anything. It could be anxiety or restlessness or sadness, grief, joy even. Like to fully open ourselves to touching this experience with the light of awareness, which has mysterious but reliable uh, property of fostering understanding, fostering metabolism, fostering transmuting energies into something more digestible and ultimately something beautiful. And to um, notice the Vedana or feeling tone Every experience comes with this feeling tone. It's either pleasant or unpleasant or neither. And anger is tricky because like, it can be quite pleasant. might have a feeling of agency. We might like, give us energy that might feel good, adrenaline boost, and maybe we get our way by being angry. Maybe people are afraid of us. The Buddha called anger a arrow with a honey-tipped honey-tipped point and a poison root. It can be like kind of seductive, but if we really feel into it, you can also sense where it's unpleasant. So recognize, allow, feel, and then T is T's apart or a way in which we can deconstruct our experience to make it more manageable, 
So in any experience, you could say there are at least three things happening. There's thoughts, there's thinking happening, there's a story, there's a view. You know, with with a complaint, it's usually quite easy to identify the story. It shouldn't be this way. It's unfair. The first 23 years of my life, I just thought that the world should be a fair place and had tremendous amount of suffering because it just kept showing itself not to be. And then in a moment, I don't know, just in a moment, I just, like, I got it. Oh, yeah, this is, this is like, I mean, I could do my part to try to make my interactions more fair and just, but uh, just causing myself torment over this thing. So began to loosen my grip on, grip on that. So you notice the story, notice the thoughts. The meditative scheme, I mean, there are ways to contemplate or engage with the thinking mind, but generally most helpful to just acknowledge and set those aside. Even uh, honoring, like the thought that the world should be a fair place is a beautiful thought, can honor that in some way rather than trying to push those thoughts away. The part of me that wishes that is like the part that really like cares. You know, it's coming from a place of love. Befriending, bowing to that thought. Okay, that's the view. And then dropping into like what are the emotions behind that view? And anger is often quite so layered. Like anger, usually when I get beneath my anger or my complaint, it's like a profound heartbreak. All the things I'm angry about, it's because, like, on one level, I just I care so much, and then the things not happening, so it's heartbreaking. But the that grieving or that being with heartbreak is requires a softening and a kind of vulnerability, and we have to be sufficiently resourced to metabolize that. Sometimes it's easier to just like wave our arms around and be angry. So teasing apart, here are thoughts, here's emotional energy in the body, and then going even deeper to the level of sensation. Where is their tension? Where is their pressure? Where is their vibration? What's the is there movement in the energy, or is it more like blocked or fixed? Is there does it have a shape or a particular resonance in the body? Some people might experience a color or a sound or a number just to really open to what's actually happening in this moment. Uh, as I was saying before, the mind can project and catastrophize and, and, and also plan and make beautiful things happen, but the thoughts about the thing in my experience, are almost actually, you know, a, a negative thing are almost always way worse than the actual thing. So what's the actual thing as a felt sense experience in the body? This is a good way to work with pain. You know, I've been having some lower back pain the last few days, and I can see how the mind goes to the time where I was flat on my back for three days, and I had to cancel my whole schedule, and what if that happens again? Or mine just goes to all the worst things. 
And when I come to the emotional level, I can see there's fear and there's anxiety and there's anger and even some sadness. But then when I come to the level of sensation, even in this moment, as I'm experiencing some discomfort, I can say it's throbbing, pulsing, a bit tight, some tension in the upper back that's kind of holding me upright. Some heat, the clenching of the jaw. It's definitely unpleasant, but much more manageable than what the th- the, the mind can manufacture. I just realized I've been droning on for a long time. <laughs> we only have 15 minutes left. So um, raft, this is a really nice way to practice. Recognize, allow, feel. That's probably sometimes sufficient. And then tease apart what's thinking, what's emotional, and what's tactile felt sense immediate experience of the moment and in this kind of like attending um, the emotion takes its course all these emotions there's even some research in MRI machines to show this that like they have a lifespan and the lifespan is measured in minutes. And if we have this experience of being angry, like I was angry all day, uh, you can investigate that because it's quite likely that there are many moments where anger wasn't predominant. And then also the way in which the mind kicks it up again and again. And this is where we build we build our capacity. You know, this is part of like just by being here, just by spending thirty minutes in meditation, we're building a kind of capacity to be present with what is difficult. Because inevitably, the difficulties arise. You know, small things: the itch we don't scratch, the tremendous restlessness that wants us to get up and tend to something that we don't do. So little by little, we build our capacity to be with difficult, and then we can sit in this storm, knowing that we may buffet it about, but that we can take it, that we'll be stronger for it. Maybe I'll end with a poem. I... Oh, yeah, no saying. This is a saying from Tore Zenji's Bodhisattva Vow. How can we be ungrateful to anyone or anything? Even though someone may be a fool, we can be compassionate. If someone turns against us, speaking ill of us and treating us bitterly, it is best to bow down. This is the Buddha appearing to us, finding ways to free us from our own attachments, the ones that have made us suffer again and again and again. Now on each flash of thought, a lotus flower blooms, and on each flower, a Buddha. I love this idea of whatever's hindering us in the moment, 
whatever complaint we might have to take that opportunity to bow down because there's, you know, your teacher has arrived. There's something to be learned from this moment of experience. And then when we have that attitude, uh, each flash of thought has this, you know, even the complaining thought, each flash of thought has this lotus flower, the symbol of awakening, the lotus that grows only in mud. Uh, and on each lotus of Buddha, that each flash of thought becomes this fuel for awakening. Thank you for your kind attention.